The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Back during the early 1970s, the devil took Hollywood by storm. Films like Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist became major hits, earning both critical acclaim and box office success. To this day, The Exorcist ranks as one of the top-grossing horror films of all time. Back during its original run, it raked in a staggering $230 million and went on to earn 10 Academy Awards including Best Actress, Best Director, and Best Picture in 1973. So it seemed like a surefire hit when a Los Angeles advertising executive named Robert Munger approached film producer Harvey Bernhard with an idea for a movie about the Antichrist. Both Bernhard and Munger would admit in interviews years later that even though Munger was the one who came up with the idea, the man also began issuing dire warnings early on that the devil might not want the movie to be made. Munger recalled telling Bernhard that if you make this movie, you're going to have some problems. If the devil's single greatest weapon is to be invisible and you're going to take away his invisibility to millions of people, he's not going to want that to happen. Now, you might think this was just a bit of Hollywood marketing to drum up interest in the film. But even before production started, strange things began to happen. In June 1975, just two months before his first day on the set, lead actor Gregory Peck's son shot himself in the head. Then, when Peck was flying to London to begin filming, his plane was struck by lightning. Not only that, but the very same thing happened to screenwriter David Seltzer's plane while he was flying to London on a different plane. Twice can probably be chalked up to simple coincidence. But just a few weeks after that, executive Mark Neufeld boarded a flight from L.A. only to have his plane struck by lightning as well. As production pushed forward, Bernhard began wearing a cross on the set. At one point, the crew hired a small plane for some aerial filming, but they had to switch aircraft at the last minute. That plane crashed on takeoff, killing everyone on board. Then in September, while Mark Neufeld, the film executive whose plane was struck by lightning, was staying at the London Hilton with his wife, the building was bombed by the Irish Republican Army. From there, the string of strange mishaps kept occurring. In one scene, a group of trained attack dogs were supposed to chase down a stuntman standing in for Gregory Peck. Only something went wrong, and the dogs went wild and wouldn't stop attacking the stuntman, even after being ordered to do so by their trainer. Then there was another scene in the film in which the young Antichrist Damien is taken to the zoo by his parents, only to have all the animals go bananas around him. The day after that scene was filmed, the animal trainer they hired was eaten alive by a tiger. 
But the creepiest tragedy of all has to deal with special effects designer John Richardson. He was the man responsible for designing the film's goriest death scene, in which actor David Warner is decapitated by a sheet of flying glass. While Richardson and his wife, Liz Moore, were working on another film, they got in a terrible car accident. Richardson was knocked unconscious, but survived. Moore wasn't so lucky. A tire came smashing through the window, decapitating her in an eerie parallel to the decapitation scene from The Omen. But what was even more disturbing still was that while Richardson was recovering in the hospital, he recalled the last thing he saw right before the crash. It was a sign by the side of the road that said the town of Omen was 66.6 kilometers away. The behind-the-scenes story of The Omen has gone down in Hollywood history as one of the most famous cursed films of all time. Sure, it's easy to dismiss all these tragic events as simple coincidences and nothing more. And yet the idea that a film about the Antichrist might be cursed is pretty tantalizing to consider. Over the centuries, a lot of biblical literature and religious leaders have issued grave warnings about the coming of the Antichrist. The legendary opposite number of Jesus Christ who is destined to bring about Armageddon. But for all this talk about the Antichrist, it may surprise you to learn the word Antichrist only appears five times in passages in the New Testament. And those are all in the first and second epistle of John. There is another similar term, pseudo-Christos, or false Christ, that appears in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. But the word Antichrist doesn't appear anywhere in the book of Revelation, even though that's where much of the apocalyptic rhetoric stems from. Throughout the centuries, the concept of the Antichrist has evolved and grown into its own mythology that continues to terrify people even today. But for everyone fearful that the Antichrist is real and planning on bringing about hell on earth, you may not have anything to worry about. Because back in the mid-19th century, there was a woman who led a small group of worshippers who believed they killed the Antichrist. This then led to another one of her followers to kill in her name again and again. I'm Nate Hale, and I swear the devil didn't make me do this podcast. And this is The Conspirators. One thing you should probably understand about the concept of the Antichrist is that a lot of what we think we know doesn't actually come from the Bible at all. Like a lot of stories throughout history, the Antichrist is one that has evolved over time and keeps getting added onto in subsequent retellings of the tale. The actual term Antichrist is translated from a combination of two ancient Greek words, anti and Christos, that combined together means anointed one. The Bible isn't the only religion that makes reference to him either. Several other world religions make reference to an evil being destined to destroy us all. For example, Islamic religious texts have their own reference to Al-Masih ad-Dajjal, an anti-Messiah figure who will deceive humanity and lead it toward a path of destruction. As I mentioned previously, the epistles of John are the only place in the Bible the term Antichrist is actually used. 
And even there, its usage tends to be a little vague. In John 2.18, it actually references multiple antichrists, not a single individual as we typically think about it today. Polycarp, the second-century Christian bishop of Smyrna, began warning his followers that anyone who preached false doctrine was the Antichrist. This again points towards the idea that the Antichrist may have actually meant to reference an entire class of people, not a single individual. It should probably come as no surprise, then, that a lot of early writings about the Antichrist is also pretty anti-Semitic. Since many ancient Christians began claiming the Antichrist would be Jewish, born to an especially wicked Jewish mother. One of the most notable indicators of just who the Antichrist might be comes from the book of Revelation, even though that book of the Bible never mentions the Antichrist by name. One thing it does reference, though, is the number 666, the so-called number of the beast. In our modern interpretation of the Antichrist, this is an actual number that appears on the body of the evil being to identify him. In the film The Omen, the number appears on young Damien's scalp, but that was actually something dreamed up by the film's screenwriter. Some modern religious scholars now believe the number 666 in the Bible might have actually been a coded reference to the Roman Emperor Nero. In Revelations, we learn that Satan, in the form of a dragon, has two henchmen referred to as beasts. One of these beasts is described as the beast from land, while the other is said to come from the sea. Some theologians now interpret these passages to actually be referring to the Roman armies traveling both by sea and land. There's an ancient Hebrew alphanumeric code known as gematria. It turns out if you take the Latin spelling of Nero Caesar and transliterate it into Hebrew, it produces the number 616. Some religious scholars have carried that a step further, did a little more math, and come up with a theory that the number 666 referenced in the Bible may have actually been a coded reference to the Roman Emperor Nero, who reigned from 55 to 68 AD. As far as exactly who the Antichrist is supposed to be, that's a question that keeps shifting throughout the ages. Practically every pope in history has been accused of being the Antichrist. So too have a number of U.S. presidents, as well as any number of other world leaders and dictators throughout history, including Benito Mussolini, Joseph Stalin, and, of course, Adolf Hitler. Some astute mathematicians have even gone so far as to apply their own numerical values to the letters in the name Hitler that, when added up, equals the number 666. But at the same time, I'm pretty sure you can do that with a lot of names along with the right combination of numbers. Something else that became intertwined with all the apocalyptic warnings of the coming of the Antichrist were the Cold War fears of total nuclear Armageddon. As the years went by, the possible identity of the Antichrist changed with the times. John F. Kennedy, Henry Kissinger, and Mikhail Gorbachev were all names tossed out there by various religious leaders as potential Antichrists. In more recent years, every president after Jimmy Carter has been named a potential Antichrist, as well as Saddam Hussein, Muammar Gaddafi, and many more. Of course, this constant shifting of potential Antichrists also suggests one of two scenarios. Either the person doing the accusing is wrong, or the Antichrist can actually change his identity. It's actually that last idea that fueled the beliefs of a woman named Rhoda Wakeman, who during the mid-19th century led to a group of religious followers who claimed to have killed the Antichrist. She was born Rhoda Sly on November 6, 1786 in Fairfield, Connecticut. She was the first of four children. 
Her father, Phineas, married twice in his life. First, to Rhoda's mother, whose name appears to be lost to the historical record. Then later to another woman named Eunice Baker, who gave birth to Rhoda's half-brother, a boy named Samuel, in 1803. At age four, Samuel suffered a major head injury that left him mentally disabled. This would play a hand into his role in Rhoda's life later on. We don't know a lot about Rhoda's religious upbringing growing up, but it's clear that her belief in Christianity had a powerful effect on her throughout her life. It's known she attended Methodist meetings and read her Bible constantly. Other books she cited as having a profound impact on her growing up included Milton's Paradise Lost, as well as a devotional text by the Reverend Richard Baxter titled The Saints' Everlasting Rest, a treatise of the blessed state of the saints and their enjoyment of God and glory. Around the year 1800, Rhoda married a distiller named Ira Wakeman. They had several children, the exact number of which are a little unclear, but the best estimates put it at between 15 to 17. Ira was a violent drunk, and he didn't like Rhoda bringing her religion into their home. In 1825, he threatened to kill her. This not only terrified her for the obvious reasons, but also because she felt if she died suddenly, it would leave her unprepared for meeting her maker. Ira once told her that if he ever caught her praying or reading the Bible, he'd cut her throat. He even slept with a straight razor by his side, just in case the inclination ever came over him. Years of verbal and physical abuse drove Rhoda to secretly pray for Jesus to save her. It was clear that Ira suffered his own mental derangement, and it appeared to infect Rhoda's mental stability as well. At one point during their marriage, Ira told Rhoda he had come up with a firm date in his mind for her demise. He told her that he had made what he described as a league with the devil to commit suicide. But before he did so, he planned on murdering Rhoda first. According to Rhoda, Ira told her the world would never be at peace as long as God let me live. Now, Ira knew if he killed his wife, he'd be arrested for her murder. But he was looking forward to his date with the gallows and he told Rhoda that afterwards he would meet her in hell. When the date finally came, when Ira said it was time for her to die, he lit a small fire and set out two chairs in front of it. He ordered Rhoda to sit across from him and prepare for her death. She did as she was told, fully expecting her husband's next move to be to cut her throat. But instead of pulling out a straight razor, he instead grabbed a jagged shard of wood from the fire and thrust it into her heart. The pain was intense and Rhoda died right there on the spot. This was followed by a vision of her body being surrounded by black spirits who planned on carrying her away. But then suddenly a glowing white spirit broke through the darkness and drove away all the evil imps who had gathered around her. This was followed by a series of further visions where Jesus and a choir of angels in white robes carried her up to heaven. They showed her images of the crucifixion, of Adam and Eve and even her own dead body still lying there next to the fireplace back on earth. Soon the glowing white spirit brought her back down to earth and deposited her soul back into her mortal body. A chorus of angels surrounded her body and brought her back to life, to which Ira announced, she is raised. Now, this is all Rhoda's versions of events. According to other sources, Ira never stabbed her with a burning log, but instead gave her a severe beating that knocked her unconscious. But in either case, this event had a profound change on Rhoda forever after. When she awoke, her faith in God had become absolute. 
She announced that every word in the Bible was the literal truth, and she felt it was her duty to gather a group of followers that she would lead toward the glory of salvation. These were the Wakemanites, and they become infamous throughout history for what they ended up doing. The Wakemanite faith had three core tenets. A genuine belief that every word of the Bible was the absolute truth, the belief that God was the supreme ruler, and that Jesus Christ came into the world to save it from sin. There's nothing about any of those beliefs that separate it from any number of other Christian denominations. But then Rhoda kept adding on to what her followers were supposed to believe, and that's where things get complicated. One of her new rules was to state that all marriages were illegal. She believed that marriage was simply a gateway to sin and worldly lust and needed to be abolished. She told her followers that she was God's chosen, and it was her duty to redeem the world from sin and build Christ's kingdom on earth. She believed the devil had power over death and could kill any sinner at any time. At the same time, Rhoda believed she alone had been granted the ability to forgive people of their sins, and thus could save people's lives along with their souls. Not only that, but God also granted her the power to look people in the eyes and determine if they were evil. Oh, and also God gave her supreme power over everything, and she could destroy the earth whenever she wanted. And if anybody disagreed with any of these things, then clearly they were possessed by evil spirits placed in them by the devil. As Rhoda's faith continued to develop, she used certain passages in the Bible as justification for yet another belief that the Antichrist was not only real and living there on earth, but that he was actually an evil spirit that had the ability to move from one person to another. According to Rhoda, the Antichrist's primary motive was to slay her, so that he could damn humanity and destroy the universe once she was out of the way. Of course, the first person she determined was possessed by the Antichrist was her husband Ira. His attempt to murder her by driving a burning shaft of wood into her heart was just the first of many attempts on her life she expected by the forces of evil. She left Ira soon after that incident to go live with one of her daughters. While out from under Ira's roof, she began preaching from door to door and gathering her flock. Then, when she finally showed back up on Ira's doorstep, she brought with her a group of followers who rushed him and took him captive. They tied Ira up, and then Rhoda pulled out a knife. She began stabbing Ira repeatedly, although she didn't kill him at that point. Because some of her followers were so alarmed by what she was doing, they dragged her away before she was able to finish the deed. Nonetheless, Ira did die on March 8, 1833, from complications brought on by his wounds. Mind you, although the Wakemanites took their beliefs to an extreme level, they weren't entirely unique during that era. During the 18th and 19th centuries, America experienced two major religious revivals during which hundreds of esoteric new faiths sprung up, each with their own unique religious doctrine. The First Great Awakening, as it was called, occurred between the 1730s to the 1770s. During this time, many fire and brimstone ministers started up new churches, some of whom would lead to the growth of several other denominations. Many of these churches faded into obscurity. Others simply merged or evolved into existing denominations, such as the Baptists and the Methodists. But a few new denominations, like the Seventh-day Adventists, and the Church of Jesus Christ and the Latter-day Saints eventually became part of the religious mainstream and are still around today. It was around the 1790s when the Second Great Awakening began. It was during this period that hundreds of homespun tent revivals and camp meetings began popping up across the country. 
For example, in one well-known incident, a pious farmer named William Miller announced to his flock that he had calculated the precise date when Jesus would return in 1843. On that date, the Millerites, as they came to be known, dressed in ceremonial ascension robes and gathered on rooftops, hillsides, and in cemeteries, waiting for them all to be lifted up to heaven. But when nothing happened, Miller then told his followers his calculations must have been off. Then he gave them a new date in October of the following year. But once again, that date came and went, without incident. This is something that thus came to be known as the Big Disappointment. One of those Millerites, a woman named Thankful S. Hersey, actually left Miller's flock following the Great Disappointment and joined Rhoda's Wakemanites soon after. In 1840, Rhoda converted her brain-damaged half-brother Samuel Sly to her faith. Prior to that, he attended a Methodist church, but after hearing Rhoda preach to him about the powers bestowed upon her by God, he joined her church instead. Sly was a farmhand and considered by most to be a good-humored and gentle individual. He once reportedly had to ask one of his neighbors to kill a chicken for him, since he was unable to do it himself. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. Samuel Sly's conversion to Rhoda's beliefs proved quite easy, since he was quite naive and accepted everything she told him at face value. This included her own interpretation of the Bible, her self-described divine gifts, as well as her belief that the Antichrist was an evil spirit that jumped from one host body to the next. It wasn't long after joining the Wakemanites that Samuel's personality began to change for the worse. He stopped being so open and trusting about his neighbors. He previously used to walk past people's houses and wave hello to everyone, but no longer. He became paranoid, believing that his neighbors were conspiring to kill him, and that many of them were in league with the devil himself. Some of Rhoda Wakeman's own daughters came to believe their mother was mentally deranged, brought on by years of mental and physical abuse by Ira. Rhoda, on the other hand, remained steadfast in her belief she was on a mission from God to save the universe. Rhoda tended to hold anyone who agreed with her in high regard, but anyone who crossed her or even merely questioned her beliefs found themselves being accused of being evil witches, or perhaps even the Antichrist himself. In 1852, Ephraim Lane, the husband of Rhoda's daughter, Caroline, told her that her beliefs were nothing more than a delusion. Rhoda immediately announced that Ephraim was possessed by an evil spirit out to destroy the good spirit inside her. In 1854, Rhoda excommunicated another of her son-in-laws, Charles Willoughby. 
whom Rhoda accused of causing terrible winter storms and conjuring evil spirits to terrorize Samuel Sly. When her daughter Caroline questioned this, Rhoda immediately denounced her too and accused her of trying to kill her. In November 1855, a Wakemanite named Amos Hunt and his wife attended a Sunday service and brought with them a number of baked goods, including several cakes and one pie. Rhoda ate a piece of the pie and immediately became violently ill. She was convinced the food was poisoned, especially after Samuel and another follower also became ill. She spent two days in agony before finally seeing her physician named E.C. Chamberlain. It should be noted that Chamberlain thought that Rhoda was off her rocker, a belief that may have stemmed from the fact that Rhoda came to believe her previous doctor was an evil sorcerer. Chamberlain suggested perhaps they had all come down with a bout of a typical stomach ailment brought on by spoiled food, but Rhoda dismissed this out of hand. Samuel took the remainder of the pie to a chemist at Yale to test for poisoning. But even before the results were in, Rhoda announced to her followers the pie contained enough poison to kill ten men. The truth, she said, had been revealed to her by God. This was no ordinary poison, according to Rhoda, since Rhoda was, of course, immune to all earthly poisons. This was a magical potion made from the brains of men, the oil of men's bones, the eyes of a dog, and a number of other sinister-sounding ingredients. Although Rhoda had previously declared a local man named Eben Gold to have been possessed by the Antichrist, he had died of natural causes, which meant the Antichrist spirit was on the hunt for a new host. The obvious candidate had to be Amos Hunt, who, after all, had brought the magically poisoned pie to the church. This caused all of Rhoda's followers to turn on Amos, who began to fear for his life. In an attempt to save himself, Amos offered Rhoda and her followers a cash settlement of $500 if they'd let him live. The money was exchanged to an attorney. Miraculously, right after Rhoda received the money, she announced the Antichrist spirit had left Amos and moved on to another host. The new Antichrist was one of Rhoda's followers named Justice Matthews. There was no obvious reason why the Antichrist would have chosen Matthews. In fact, he had no regular contact with Rhoda herself, even though he regularly attended Wakeham night services with his wife, Mehedabel. But then when his wife began experiencing seizures, followed soon after by Rhoda herself claiming she felt unwell, Justice Matthews began to accept that he might be the Antichrist without his knowing. So it came to be that Justice Matthews began cooperating fully with the rest of the Wakemanites when they attempted to drive the evil spirit from his body. They started by making him drink copious amounts of tea brewed from witch hazel bark, which, Rhoda claimed, had magical properties that warded off evil spirits. When this failed, Matthews began a three-day fast, during which he slept with a heavy branch of witch hazel in the cellar of his house. On December 23rd, the Wakemanites gathered at Matthews' home for an exorcism. They blindfolded Matthew since his gaze greatly upset Rhoda, who claimed to be tormented by the evil she saw in his eyes. They then asked him if he'd allow them to tie him up as well, to which Matthews readily agreed. For the next two hours, the Wakemanites moved Matthews from room to room throughout his house, sometimes lying him on a bed, at other times making him lie on the floor, or sitting him upright in a chair. All the while they chanted prayers around him, trying to drive the evil entity from his body. They begged Matthews to renounce the evil spirit inside him, telling him its presence was slowly killing Rhoda. 
They grew quickly impatient and told him it would be better for him to die instead of Rhoda, who was there to save them all. It was generally agreed that Matthews should be killed if the spirit couldn't be driven away. To this, Matthews himself agreed was probably a good idea. While all this was going on, Rhoda claimed to begin suffering from terrible torments. She said she couldn't breathe at times and sometimes felt the hands of invisible creatures tearing at her flesh. Samuel began fearing for his half-sister's life and rushed to the cellar to grab the heavy stick of witch hazel Matthews was storing down there. He went back upstairs and locked himself in a room with Matthews. Then he began beating Matthews mercilessly with a stick, bashing him in the skull and knocking him out of a chair and onto the floor. Then, when that didn't seem to do the trick, Samuel grabbed a knife and cut Matthew's throat. Nearby was a thin metal rod used for lifting the stove lid. Samuel began plunging the rod into Matthew's chest twelve times in the rough shape of a cross, in the hope that this would finally release the evil spirit. Several of the Wakemanites could hear all this going on, but were only able to pound helplessly at the door. By 2 a.m., Rhoda began claiming she was feeling better. A half hour later, Samuel finally unlocked the door, revealing to everyone else what he had done. The other Wakemanites immediately set about the task of covering up the murder. Thankful, Hersey used a basin of water to help him wash the blood from his clothes. But the sleeves of Samuel's shirt were so soaked with blood, they ultimately decided to tear them off and toss them into the wood-burning stove. The witch hazel stick, which was still matted with Matthew's blood, was dropped into the privy outside. The knife was then laid next to Matthew's body in the hope it would look like he had killed himself. Samuels wiped up most of the blood on the floor. Then the Wakemanites went upstairs to pray. Someone suggested they might still want to move the body, but in the end, everyone was too exhausted and just left it where it was. But not every member of the church appeared to be on board with committing murder. Early the next morning, one of the Wakemanites named Almiron Sanford went to get the oldest of Justice Matthew's five children, 19-year-old Willard. When Willard entered the room and saw his father's body lying on its side, with part of the skull smashed in, his throat cut and several gaping wounds in his chest, Willard cried out that his father must have killed himself. The local sheriff, Leander Parmalee, wasn't so easily convinced. He knew a murder when he saw one and arrested everyone who was at the house that night. A jury heard evidence on Christmas Day. The following day, Samuel decided to confess. He held a Bible to his chest as he explained in detail everything he had done. Afterwards, the jury agreed to release everyone except Samuel, Thankful Hersey, Josiah Jackson, Abigail Sables, and Rhoda Wakeman. They were all held to await a grand jury. When news broke about the murder, stories began circulating in papers describing how this was all a symptom of the religious mania brought on following the Great Disappointment. Articles widely denounced the Wakemanites, the Millerites, and many of the other small churches that had popped up over the last few decades as dangerous to people's mental and physical health. But even though Rhoda Wakeman and several of her followers were now in police custody, that didn't mean the killings in her name ceased. One of the Wakemanites who remained free was a fellow named Charles Sanford, the nephew of Mahitable Matthews. He'd been released from an insane asylum nearly a decade before the murder. He suffered from a number of deformities and other ailments that plagued him throughout his life. Along with his mental issues, he was born with a protruding jaw that stuck out farther than his nose. He had a club foot that caused him to have an extreme limp. And he also suffered from an advanced case of tuberculosis. But what he claimed troubled him most were severe stomach pains, something he went to Rhoda to cure him of using her healing abilities. 
Charles Sanford lived constantly on the edge of sanity, but following the death of his uncle, Justice Matthews, something inside him broke. On Christmas Eve, he had a major outburst during a church service that frightened the other parishioners. The locals shied away from him after that. Then on January 1st, he left his parents' house brandishing an axe. At first glance, this might not have struck anyone as too unusual considering Sanford made his living as a woodcutter. But what was a little harder to explain was why he also went out that day carrying a three-foot-long hickory club that was sharpened at both ends and covered with indecipherable writing. He trudged two and a half miles along a snow-covered road until he reached the home of Enoch Sperry, a 69-year-old farmer who was generally held in high regard by his neighbors for his good business sense. On that particular morning, he was on his way to a neighbor's house to pick up a sleigh box he'd lent him. He hitched a pair of sleigh runners to his farm horse and was on his way when he ran into Sanford around 11 a.m. We don't know exactly what transpired between the two men, whether Sanford specifically sought out Sperry, or if the two men met purely by chance is unknown. What is known is that Sanford struck Sperry with the blunt end of his axe just above the right temple. Sperry's skull was shattered instantly. Then Sanford laid into the 69-year-old man with the sharp side of the blade, nearly decapitating him. Sanford fled the scene in one direction while Sperry's terrified horse fled the opposite way. It made its way to a nearby stable at the Clinton Hotel. One of Sperry's neighbors recognized the horse and went to find the old man, thinking perhaps he'd suffered some sort of accident. Meanwhile, Sanford wasn't done with his bloody rampage. He fled through the woods to the home of Ichabod Umberfield. He got there sometime between 2 and 3 p.m. He snuck inside the house and leaned the axe and club in the hallway. He found the housekeeper, Lucy Deming, washing the kitchen floor. He tried dragging her out of the room, but Lucy fought back. He retrieved the axe and went looking for her. He ran through the house only to encounter her daughter, 10-year-old Eliza Deming, who recognized Sanford and ran screaming for her mother. The mother and daughter locked themselves in a bedroom. Eliza threw open the bedroom window and began shouting for help. Umberfield had been outside and heard the girl screaming. He entered the house and found Sanford sitting in a chair by the stove. The farmer thought he might still be able to reason with Sanford, so he pulled up another chair and tried talking to him. But Sanford refused to speak. He just stared blankly into the crackling fire before he slowly rose from his chair, then limped over and picked up his club and his axe. Then he turned and swung the axe into Umberfield's skull. Umberfield collapsed to the floor. Sanford brought the axe down on the man's skull one more time, cleaving it in two. Both Lucy Deming and Eliza rushed into the room in time to witness this firsthand. The woman and child both screamed in terror even if Sanford brought the axe down for a third blow right into Umberfield's neck. At first he told Lucy and Eliza to shut up their screaming or he chopped them up too. But then he just left the house and began to clean the blood off his axe in the snow. Lucy locked the door behind him. While all this was going on, Samuel Perkins came across the badly mutilated body of Enoch Sperry lying in the snow. The body was carried back to the Sperry farm while police and several of the man's neighbors went out looking for the killer. They followed Sanford's trail back to the Umberfield farm. They saw Sanford standing there in a circle of bloody snow and began chasing him. Sanford ran as best he could until the posse managed to surround him near the junction of Brooks and Downs Road. Sanford tried to fight them off with his axe and his club, but ultimately there were too many of them, and they were all armed with clubs and farm tools of their own. 
A man named Gora managed to knock Sanford down with a cudgel. Afterwards, the police hauled him off to jail. During the inquest that followed, Sanford claimed he had been driven to commit the murders. After the news that Rhoda Wakeman and her followers had been arrested, he said the pain in his stomach had grown excruciating, and he believed the only way to relieve it was to kill in Rhoda's name. But before he could be convicted, though, his condition worsened. Six months later, Sanford was dead of consumption. As all this was going on, Rhoda Wakeman was coming to terms with the fact that most of her devout followers were turning against her. She began writing letters to other ministers describing their deceit as the work of the devil. She said they must always remain vigilant for the Antichrist was out there and he would stop at nothing to destroy the world. If she didn't get out of jail soon, she wrote, the entire universe was in peril. Soon those warnings about the Antichrist turned to direct threats of her own terrible power if she was not immediately released. Rhoda swore she would unleash her own destructive fury to bring about Judgment Day if the authorities did not let her go. But no one took her seriously. When the trial began three months later, the prosecutors offered a much more earthly reason for Matthew's murder beyond the alleged possession. According to the prosecutors, Matthews borrowed $200 from a bank, then loaned the money to Rhoda. She then ordered Samuels to kill him so she didn't have to pay the money back. Rhoda denied ever receiving this money, nor could she explain what happened to the $500 she received from Amos Hunt after he paid her to stop saying he was the Antichrist. Despite prosecutors painting a damning picture of Rhoda as a greedy and vindictive woman who used her sway over others to do her bidding, in the end the jury had their own ideas about what happened. They only deliberated for ten minutes, after which they came back with a judgment of not guilty by reason of insanity for Rhoda, Samuel, and the other defendants. Samuel and Rhoda were sent to the Hartford Retreat, Connecticut's only asylum for the destitute insane. Thankful Hersey actually got to walk free after a man named Samuel Foote paid her bond and allowed him to work in his home, where she served as his housekeeper until her death in 1857. Samuel lived in the asylum for the next ten years, where he came to tell everyone that he was really the prophet Elijah. This went on until a time when he decided to stop eating and drinking. He died of starvation on July 14, 1865. By that point, Rhoda was already dead. She had died six years earlier in 1859 of natural causes, making this her second and presumably final trip to heaven. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Zach, Teal, Cassandra, Rita, Helen, Jessica, and username Something Rotten. Your generosity and support is overwhelming. Just a reminder, the patrons of the show get access to all sorts of rewards, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our exclusive bonus mini-episodes. If you're not on Patreon, but are still looking for a way to support the show, then I invite you to tell your friends about The Conspirators and ask them to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. If you're not on Apple, you can also find us on most of your other major podcast apps. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our entire back catalog of shows. If you're looking for us on social media, you can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and our Facebook page. Feel free to reach out to us at our email, too, at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com, and let us know how we're doing. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time.